right, welcome to episode 58 of uh, the Bobbycast with Brandy Clark. I'm a big fan. I'm glad you came in. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always, at first, a little weird when people come in that I'm a huge fan of because I'm always a little bit intimidated. So, oh, well, no need to be intimidated by this girl. Well, I appreciate you coming in, and you, we're the same because we just finished working out. So mm-hmm. there's no shame in either one of us in our in our workout pants. I like that. That's what I mean. I love that's I love radio more than TV for that reason. Could you, you wear know? whatever you want? Yeah, and it's got to be nice. I was gonna I was gonna ask you this before the podcast, but I'll ask on it. What time does your day start? Three. Three a.m. Yeah. So imagine if you had to be in hair and makeup. Like, I mean, even though guys don't have to be in hair and makeup like girls, but if you were on a news guy. I have he, friends that do morning television, mm-hmm. and they have to be in hair and makeup, and they have to get there even earlier, yeah. and their clothes matter. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, radio is much more a visual thing now because everything's online, but still, it doesn't really matter for me that much, mm-hmm. which is unfair because Amy, my co-host, it does matter to her, Yeah, and she has to look a certain way in her mind. Mm-hmm. Or she just gets beat down. It's not a fair thing. Is, is that because I again I can go to work in sweats and a, and not shave for four days, and then if God forbid she's put makeup on, people are just like they they go after her. Anyway, I, my high school English teacher I remember asked, "Why do guy why do girls look so bad when they don't wear makeup and and guys don't like guys look just fine?" And I said, "Well, if guys wore makeup every day and then they didn't, they wouldn't." You know, I always wish the guys could wear makeup, or you guys didn't have to wear makeup at all. You guys, other than you girls, oh, that'd be nice. It would be a, an equal billing kind of thing. Because um, if we wore makeup, like how good looking I would be. Whenever I go, because I just did a festival and a TV show on Saturday, and they put they cover me in makeup. I look like Twilight. I look great. <laughs> they have me in so much makeup. I was like, man, if I could look like this. The problem is, if I wore that much makeup, really, and everybody else doesn't, then you know, yeah, you're, you're the guy that wears. You're, you know, because Ryan Seacrest wears a lot of makeup all, mm-hmm. all the time. And you can tell when you see him, you're like, well, he's wearing a lot of makeup. Yeah. But man, he looks good. He does. I look great. I'm going to tell you, I don't even say this, but I look great in a lot of makeup. Oh, I think <laughs> everybody does. Uh, early on in living here, one of the first times I worked with a real hair and makeup team, I asked them, who's the most naturally beautiful woman you've ever worked on? Oh, that's a good question. And they looked at each other and said to me. Hold, hold, hold on. I like to play this game. <laughs> okay. So, is it an artist? Well... I'm just going to tell you the answer. Oh, you're taking the they game said, away. Okay, go ahead. There's no such thing. That's that's a mm. cop out answer. Well, I agree, but it but it did it does put things in perspective for you because there is a lot of pressure, um, like you were saying about Amy feeling like she needs to look a certain way, and if you're on camera at all, you ha- you if hopefully you have the benefit of a professional team. That you know, I had to hire someone mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. again, I I was on camera. <laughs> yeah, and it ain't cheap. Nope. <laughs> Sometimes don't you wish you would have gone into that? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I have friends who do that, and I think we all search for whatever fulfills us. That doesn't fulfill me, right. but I but when I do put on makeup, I always go, man, I do look good, oh. but it's a lot of work. Yeah, well, they know how to make your eyes pop, and they they can make you look ten pounds thinner real quick with some of that. Heavy duty contouring. Do you travel with a makeup person at all? I don't. You know, I've had to learn to do my own well enough to go on stage. I couldn't do it well enough for camera, but I can do it pretty well um, on stage just for my own shows. And a makeup artist I work with a lot gave me a few lessons. And he said to me, Now, 
false eyelashes are tough. So don't don't get frustrated. I grabbed that false eyelash and I am not a hair and makeup girl and total tomboy. Popped it on first go and he says he steps back and he says, "Well, Everybody's got a gift. We have found yours. <laughs> so do you wish maybe you would have done that a little bit? Well, I don't love hair and makeup, but when I get the bills, let's see what they make a day. Yeah. yeah. A lot. A lot. <laughs> you know what's funny to me about you is that, because I'm a big fan of your music, way before I knew you, I was just like, well, I was drawn to your music because it's so like real life. It's like where I come from, a really tiny, poor, poverty-driven town in Arkansas. It reminded me of home and my mom and my grandma. And I would hear your music and I would say, Wow. She must be like, like really sad all the time. You're so delightful. Oh, that's so, it's so nice. <laughs> like every time I've met you, I've always been like, I can listen to your music and it like puts me in this emotional place. But you're so delightful as a person. Oh, Bobby, that's how do you very do, nice. How are you both of these? Like, where, how, how do you pull this out of you? Well, I think I am both of those things pretty equally. You know, I mean, I have a lot of sadness. I always have, you know, I, I put on my Twitter, born a little brokenhearted. I've always been drawn to the brokenhearted. I've all, from the time I was a little kid, I loved a sad song. And, you know, I think there are just some people that are a little sad and I'm one of those. And I'm also a lot happy, you know, it, it is that balance. And, and for me, I grew up in a real small town in Washington state and probably a lot like the town you're from in Arkansas, just different accent. And, and and saw a lot of a lot of hardships and and had tough things happen in my own family and and I think the way for me to deal with those things is to channel them into my music. Like when I play this song, and I'll play this one, one of the more recent ones from yours that I that I really love. She likes cigarettes. Three kids, no husband, right? Mm-hmm. This reminds me of my mom. Like when you sing songs, and, and my mom died of drug abuse in her forties. But again, for a long period of time, it was me, my little sister, my mom, and her struggling, but raising two kids by herself. And maybe it's just that your music almost talks to my selfish brain. She's got three kids. It wasn't three kids; it was two. But it was like I, I would just—it's like such a real story in your songs. Thank you, man. And then when I meet you, you're always so awesome. And I'm like, man, is that the same person? Is this like Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Well, I had, I turned a po- I turned a corner as a songwriter, um, and I still remember the day. I, you know, in Nashville, there's so many songwriters, and you want to impress your peers. You know, you just you lo- you love the because because the same way you're talking about me and my what my songs do to you. There are lots of songwriters that their songs did that for me, and I wanted to write songs that would impress them. Who did that to you? Well, oh man. Just give me a, so a, a couple that come off the top of your head. Like who would you see and be like, wow, this is crazy that I, I, I'm well, either writing with or spending time with? Well, you know, Mark Sanders, who was at the same publishing company as me, wrote I Hope You Dance. And that, to me, that's one of the best songs ever. And I would hear the songs that Mark was turning in, and mine were nowhere near that. And, and I wanted to write songs that, that Mark would be impressed with. And, um, and then, you know... People, people that like Hillary Lindsay. When before I had hits, Hillary Lindsay was having a ton of hits, and I remember thinking, "Man, I, I wish my songs were as good as Hillary Lindsay's." And I didn't even know her, you know. And and um, different, you know, Don Schlitz. I worked up above Don Schlitz in a building one time, and I just wanted him to love. Uh, well, I would hope that he would love my songs one day. And and 
because a lot of those people wrote songs that made me want to write songs and it hit me one day I was I was going in to write and I went through the the bank to make a deposit and the girl that was the teller I didn't know anything about her but I thought for some reason I feel like it was like a god moment I thought what would she write a song about if she were going to write a song you know what's her life and I started to pay more attention to my friends that weren't songwriters and even to my own self and instead of trying to write something that was going to impress somebody write something that was that they were going to say that's me you know like when you say you hear three kids and it makes you think of your mom I wrote that with Lori McKenna we did our job if you feel that and I have people I you know it 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 moved me to tears when it happened. It might move me to tears to talk about it now, but I was playing a radio show in Jacksonville, Florida, and I came off the stage, and I was walking back to the car to, to go to the hotel, and this young guy, he was probably 22, 23, chased me down. And he said, I just want you to know that that song you have, Three Kids, No Husband, that's my mom. And, you know, that song, when I played that for her, you know, she, she cried. And I could tell that, I mean, it, it meant everything to him. And, and that wasn't my story growing up, but, but it was like, God, we have hit something here that, that hits people enough that this guy would take his, would chase me down. A, come down to this little, this little show I'm playing and B, chase me, me down to the car I'm getting in to tell me this in tears. When someone comes up to you and tells you that something that you've created has done something to their life I mean there's no greater compliment than that no there's not and then you know on the funny the funnier side of things I'll have women come up to me and they'll say how did you get into my diary like you know with songs that are a little bit more tongue-in-cheek you know how did you how did you find that out about me and and both things both things really hit me but but you know since you mentioned three kids I thought of that story and and just yeah, it, it it's the power of human emotion, I think. You have a, uh, just such a great way to tell it. And again, I heard the song the first time, and I was, I was like, man, this is like my mom. And I think a lot of America, a lot of rural America feels like this is their mom or their aunt. Mm-hmm. She lights a cigarette out on the balcony. Mike, it's like 100 degrees in here. Can we make it not 100 degrees somehow? Like, I don't know why it's 100 degrees in here. <laughs> We can't even have company because it's a hundred. Because we, it's, we, you know, we got here. working out now. We're sitting in the shower or in the the sauna, the steam room. Yeah, if that's what we want to call it, <laughs> then then fair enough. When you say you wanted to, to write songs like the people to impress the people that you wanted to impress, what was the first song you wrote where you're like, man, this one's so good, that I I want them to hear it. Oh, you know, I probably don't even remember it, and I'm sure it wasn't great because what I realized is when you think something's great. It's it's usually not. It's when something's true. For me now, you know, now that I've written songs for a long long enough time, and it, to know when I've a lot of times when I really have something, a lot of times it's when I don't want to play it for anybody because it's so vulnerable that if somebody doesn't like it, it's going to really hurt my feelings. That's usually when I've written something really good. Tell me a song that's really vulnerable that you were like, man, I'm so nervous about putting this out. Oh. That there's a song on my record, 
uh, called Since You've Gone to Heaven, my new record, Big Day in a Small Town. And, and that one to me is just real, real vulnerable for me because it came from, I lost my dad uh, right before 9-11. And he was he was killed in a work accident, and um, and and at the time I remember it was in July, and then of course nine eleven happened in September, and I remember watching the TV and still being really raw in my own grief, and then the whole country's grieving, and thinking, man, since my dad has died, the world has gone to hell, and thinking that's a song, but it was too close to me to write it, and then many many years later I, I met. Um, a, a great friend and great collaborator, Shane McAnally, and he and I were driving home from a little gambling trip to Tunica one night. And I said, I've always wanted to write this song called Since You've Gone to Heaven, The Whole World's Gone to Hell. And he just loved it. And I said, but it's just, there's just no hope in it. And he said, I don't, I don't think it matters that there's no hope in it. Like, I think we should just write it. And so we did. And, and so even though not all of that's true, the, you know, we drew from both of our experiences. It, it's very vulnerable to me and very, you know, it's sad. And, you you know, it's hard to put yourself out in that sad sort of way. Were you a sad kid? No. Uh, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been what people would say, oh, she's sad. You know, I think people, I hope most people feel like you do, like, oh, she's delightful. When um, I meet you, when I hear your music, I think, <laughs> she's me. I love sad songs. Like, I'm in love with sad songs. My favorite songs are sad. Yeah. And when I and I think that's what draws me to your music. Not that they're sad, but that they're so vulnerable and authentic feeling. And a lot of life is sad. Mm-hmm. I always say life's a dark comedy, you know, and, 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 um, you know, you, when you say vulnerable, a great piece of advice I got from a great songwriter when I first moved to town was a guy named Richard Lee, and he wrote Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue and many, many, many hits. Since and he said to me, to write what you don't want anybody to know about you because some everybody else feels that. You know, and that's what I... It's crazy to hear you talk like that as a songwriter because that's what I try to do in radio and I try to do on my book. It was like... When I wrote this this book, right, and I was like, man, I'm really putting stuff in here that I don't think anyone will understand. Substance abuse problems that I went through with my mom and her dying, and there's a lot in there. And I was like, no one's going to relate to this. Like, nobody's going to relate to this. And I found that so many people came up to me and were like, man, that's exactly 7 to 8% off, but 93% of how my life is. Mm-hmm. And I was stunned because I didn't think anybody... I felt so alone, and by putting my so alone out there, mm-hmm. I never had felt more like a group, as a group or something, if that makes sense. Totally. I think that's why singers like, for, I mean, my favorite singer of all time is Patsy Cline, but I would compare Adele to her in that when you hear them sing and there's an ache in their voice, you feel less alone in whatever it is that makes you ache, you know? And I think that's why we like to hear those things on repeat. Now, maybe not everybody is, much as, is as much of a glutton for punishment as you or me. Oh, boy, I am for sure. <laughs> like, What's your favorite sad song of all time, you think? Like, I can put Everybody Hurts from R.E.M. on and just put it on repeat. Oh, yeah. yeah. And just, just take it in and just lay there and take it. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel... Not good, but it makes me feel like somebody also understands sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I'm a sad person like no, you. I, you. I don't really, seem that way. 
But you know, some people who are real sad are real happy. I feel like I find try to find love in weird places. I don't think I got a lot of love from the traditional. I didn't have a dad, mm-hmm. and my mom was always in in trouble. You know, jail or mm-hmm. drugs or. And so I use performance in order to find some sort of love. Mm-hmm. And so for me, well, look what you're doing to me now. What, what's happening? Why, what, why are you doing this? This is not about me. <laughs> well, no, that, uh, you know, another really, really, uh, one of my mentors and, and people I looked up to, to is a guy named Rory Burke and great songwriter. And I remember him telling me anybody who wants to do this, that has a, they have a hole inside of them that will never be filled. And they think it's going to be filled by applause. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, I feel like I had an idyllic childhood. You know, I had two parents who loved... I, I always say my parents were 300% parents. And What does that mean? Like, they gave it 300%. You know, not a hundred, not even 100%. I don't ever remember a game that they weren't there. They, they would take my brother and I to music lessons that were 35 miles away, one way. Um my dad would get up at three in the morning to go to work, but he never, there was never a time that I asked him to come out and shoot baskets with me that he didn't. And so I don't have, I can't say that I had a, 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 a bad, like a, a hard childhood in that way. Um, I did have loss, you know, I lost my dad and I lost both of my grandparents who were real important to me in a four year period. Um, but I was also a little bit older, but I still think that those kinds of things are deep, hurts that don't that don't really go away i was trying to think i think i played since you got to heaven on my radio show because i just know it from well, something i came in and played it that's what it is yes, after after orlando that's what it is because yeah. i'm like for you're telling the story i'm like i know this song and you're telling me the story about it but i'm like no i know this song and yeah. you came and played it on the show well, it was a somber day i mean we barely spoke it was just walk in and play it and there was this weird like deja vu that was you're talking uh-huh. about the song and i'm because I was trying to turn it up, and I was like, I know this. And I listened, I listened to the record a hundred times, but there was, I love this song. Now now I know why I love, love it, because you can't have played it right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really good. Uh, Brandy Clark's here. Let me talk about 1-800-Flowers for a second. So Mother's Day is just around the corner, and the countdown clock is ticking. And the Mother's Day, 1-800-Flowers.com. The bouquets are guaranteed to show you all just how much you appreciate her right now. When you order a dozen multicolored roses for $29.99, one 800 flowers will give you another dozen plus a vase absolutely free. That's 50% off the original price. A bright, beautiful mix of premium roses, rainbow colors, and they're going to show your mom just how much you love her, your mom or your wife or your mother-in-law. They're not too like romantic for the mother-in-law. This is like a Mother's Day gift here. A dozen multicolored roses, $29.99. Plus another dozen and a vase for free. That's the offer right now, but it expires uh, really soon. Go check it out right now. You've, you may hear this after Mother's Day. I would still recommend going to check out 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, there's a dozen multicolored roses plus an extra bouquet and a vase for just $29.99. 1-800-Flowers.com slash bones. Put in bones up there. And the offer ends uh, soon on this one, but go check out 1-800-Flowers.com anyway. Okay, so... Man, where do we start with you? I have so much. How about I'll play a song? I'll do another one. No, you hold on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was our recording, by the way. How about uh, Better Dig Two? Okay. 
Okay. The band Perry. There's this song. You wrote this one right here. I did. It's a dark song. Mm-hmm. It's a dark love song. Lo- like you even make love songs dark. You know what's so funny is when we when we wrote this, I wrote that with uh, Trevor Rosen and Shane McAnally, and Trevor said we should title it. It was called "Put Me in the Ground" originally. Band Perry changed the name, which was really smart. But Trevor said we should call it "Put Me in the Ground" and in parentheses a love song. <laughs> Wait, I, I'm so okay. They changed the name of the song. They did, yeah. They asked us first. I've course. never heard of that. Mm-hmm. So okay, you write the song, you give them a whole. What did you call it originally? Um, put me in the ground. Put me in the ground. You give them. Put me in the ground. They hear the demo. Who sang the demo? Casey Musgrave sang the demo. So actually. they hear Casey sing uh-huh. the demo. They're like, we want the song. They come to you and say, would it be okay? And if you say no, do they? I, mean, I don't understand the process of changing the title of a song. You know, at the time, none of us cared what it was called as long as they cut it. Yeah. You know, um, and they also asked, crazy, they asked for an for a new verse the day before they went in to record it. They wanted you guys to write another verse? Yeah, write another verse. And um, I remember I was sitting at Cracker Barrel with Shane, and we called Trevor, and over the phone we wrote that last verse. And I'm really glad because it made it better, and and they had the foresight to know that it would. Um but yeah, we did. We 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 jumped through a lot of hoops for that one. Whenever you cut the demo to this, was it as violent? It was. It really yeah, was. Yeah, the record's very close to the demo. It's it's pretty rocking, mm-hmm. and it's a love song. I mean, of course, it was. You know, it was a fifteen hundred dollar demo, so sure. it couldn't be quite what. Well, it's probably more than fifteen hundred dollars. I don't. Know, it's been a long time, but uh, but it was pretty pretty aggressive. Did you feel like you had something with this song when you wrote it? Um. Yes. Yeah. I did. In fact, I fought really hard to keep holding it for the band Perry because other people wanted it, and I felt like it was—I did feel like it was a big song. And I don't know—I don't know why I felt it. I just did. I thought it was real different, and it's a different way to tell a love mm-hmm. story. Which is—it it feels like every love song, every way you can tell a love story has been told until someone else tells a new way. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Because it, you sit and you try to write something lovey. If it's a poem, if mm-hmm. it's a story, if it's a song, and you're like. Man, every love song has ever been written. Then all of a sudden, someone comes out of nowhere with a brand new angle, and you're like, how did I not think of that? I know. I know. And I remember thinking that when I heard this song, I was like, wow, darkest, coolest love song ever. <laughs> darkest, coolest love song ever. I love that. So you write Better Dig 2, and the first time you heard when you heard their version of it, were you like, man, this is a jam? Like, Did yeah. you know it would be a single? Did they give you that thing like, where we want to cut it? Well, it was between that and a, and a couple other songs for the single. And the, the crazy thing, the first time I heard it was on the CMAs. Trevor and I got to go to the CMAs that year. Our ASCAP reps took us as their dates. And so we got to hear it live the That's, first time. Did they not play it? play it for you first we they hadn't yet no i mean it was that new it was one of those situations and they held it for man i want to say 18 months but then they They held the song for a year and a half yeah that had to drive you insane well it did and it was through a couple of producers because it started out they were working with frank liddell and they held it what's miranda frank liddell yes yeah miranda lambert's producer great guy and and so they were they were working with him then they cut a record with rick rubin Beastie Boys. Yeah. Everybody. Record Open Talk. Everybody. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't cut with that. Well, then they were cutting, they were going to cut four singles with Dan Huff is the way I remember it. And that was one of them. And so I didn't know, none of us knew if it would be the single or not. We found out it would be. They performed it on the CMAs. I feel like it went for ads the next week. 
and it was something. What a thrill to go watch your song for the first time at the CMAs. Yes, it was a huge thrill. There's a great picture of me and Trevor, like, and we just look like little kids hugging each other. So excited over it. When you're watching them do that, are you kind of like, okay, I can pay my rent for a bit more? Do you get that feeling like... For me, that was the that was the first hit I had, and I'd had a lot of things that were supposed to be hits. I do remember thinking, for once, it's going to be easy, you know, because I would get songs on um, artists, a lot of newer artists, and my mom would call radio stations, you know, trying to get them to play it, all that, and and I remember her telling me that she had looked on the media check ad ad list and couldn't find it because it was at the top. Of the, wow. of it, you know, yeah. and she said, "What do you think that means, sis?" I said, "I think it means it's going to be easy for once," <laughs> but it almost wasn't because it was terrible. Um, the song came out so November. The song come so released right around then. Well, then we had that terrible Sandy Hook school shooting. It hurt the song, but it was holidays and the charts froze and the song was able to recover after the first of the year but I thought oh no not only was this a terrible tragedy but it's going to kill my song so if something like that happens and I guess I should know this because I work in radio but I don't work in the programming side Mm -hmm. of it like I work in the let me try to talk and say funny things Mm -hmm. or say things but they just want they'll stop doing songs about death period Mm -hmm. they stopped they stopped playing it for a couple weeks, you know, they like anything just, that had yeah. to do with that. Yeah. Wow. And so, and I'd heard of songs getting, getting, you know, getting killed for lack of a better word over things like the Oklahoma city bombing and, you know, things that were of a darker nature, um, just because they don't want to offend anyone at that point. And I understand that. Yeah. I'm not on that decision level. I yeah. didn't, even I didn't know that. I just remember seeing all of a sudden it was down 1400 spins overnight, you know, like, Oh no. Because they just chopped it. Mm-hmm. And then it came back. They came back with it, yeah. So how about this one right here? Mama's Broken Heart. Mm-hmm. So you wrote this? Yes. With? Casey Musgraves and uh, Shane McAnally again, you know. I'm seeing a theme here with uh-huh. with you and Shane. Yeah. You guys, write, you guys write a lot of songs together. Yeah. Shane, I, by the way, Shane's been in and mm-hmm. Shane and I have been on the road together. Mm-hmm. I love Shane. Shane's amazing. Yeah. Shane's one of the most talented humans I've ever met. Why? What what separates him? Well, I mean, just take away his talent as a singer and a writer and, you know, he's just, he's got great commercial instinct, A. And, but I think Shane, in my opinion, Shane's biggest talent and why he's able to have so many hits with so many different people, I, I believe he brings out the best in everyone. You know, when you're in a room with Shane, you're, you're going to get the best you. And I, and I, that's not just me. That's that's a lot of people, and he he's a very generous collaborator. You never feel stupid to say anything in front of him, you know. And and um, I think that's huge. And I think he can see talent in a very raw stage. And and I was just telling somebody the other day about Shane. One of my favorite things about him is it doesn't matter who doesn't believe, he keeps believing. You know, a lot of people are real fickle. They'll believe in something until they hear a lot of no's or, no, that's not going to work. If Shane believes in it, he just believes in it. And I've been fortunate enough to be one of those people that he really believed in when I had nothing going on. And he, he's just, he just can see it. Tell me about the song. You guys, 
sit down? How does the idea come about? So that was an idea. Shane actually had that idea for a long time. He wanted to write a song called Ain't Your Mama Something. He didn't know what the something was. And I remember saying, man, hold that for me, please, because I get what that means. You know, I didn't know what the something was either, but I love that, like, you know, it ain't your mama's whatever. And uh, so he and Casey and I were writing one day, and, and Shane was talking about his sister going through this breakup and how she wasn't handling it the way that her mom thought she ought to. And I said, maybe that could be that ain't your mama's whatever. And we just started throwing it around. And I do, I don't remember who said broken heart, but I do remember everybody thinking that wasn't, um, wasn't different enough, but we ended up on it. And, and it was a very, you know, it was a, we wrote it in a day and, and it was, I remember it was a, we really fought to make it as good as it could, could be. And, and I thought, you know, it's a good song. And, and I think Shane thought the same thing. And Casey really, really felt something with that song. And she went home and she did some, did like a, two guitar tracks and some hand claps and sent the, the, sent it to Shane and I, and it, it was, then it sort of was like, Oh wow, this is really something. And, um, and she was going to, re- she did record it for her first record. And then Miranda recorded it and she ended up singing on the Miranda version and the rest is history. To sit in a room with people, is there something about actually having the idea Okay, it's a co-write, or there are three of you. But if you come in with the idea, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, "That's a great idea," is there a little bit of like you feel pride that you were able to bring the idea in that everyone's working on? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and it's you know, I'll tell you, it's it's for me, it's hard to get to be as into somebody else's idea, conceptual idea as it is my own, and I think that's something that is pretty common. So when someone else says an idea that really hits you, and same way for me, if I say an idea and it really hits somebody, I know it's good because it's like, okay, it's it's good enough that whatever they whatever their ideas are, they want to jump on, on this. Um, but it's also, I mean, the idea, I think the idea is a huge portion of it. But the way somebody else sees the idea different from you can be what unlocks it. Have you ever had someone bring in an idea... And the idea was great. And you finish the song, and it's two or three of you, and you feel like, man, it wasn't my idea, and I didn't really think contribute as much as they did. And we finish the song. Oh, yeah. I mean... And you kind of feel guilty, because you're like, man, I know I'm a third of this song, mm-hmm. but I, it wasn't my idea, nor did I really... Well, I've Or had, the other way. Yeah, I've had days where I don't, I don't usually... I don't feel guilty when that happens, because then there are days where... Where, some, you know, I was talking about Rory Burke earlier. He told me some days your biggest job as a co-writer is just to keep somebody in the room who's really on it that day. And so I've been both things. I've been somebody keeping somebody in the room, and then I've been that person who's really driving the train, and, and probably 90% of the song is me. So I think it all equals out. What I, what, I don't, what I do feel real bad about is when somebody throws out a great idea and you don't nail it. And I've been known to say to that person, look, if it's just me and them, in fact, it happened recently, I feel like I did not bring anything to this. If you want to take it and write it with somebody else, do it. And it happened in this guy, he then called me later on and said, are you sure? And I said, I'm 100% sure. Because to me, that's karmically bad. You know, I, I mean, it's just... Some ideas are great, and and they they need to be written as great as they are. And so, if I'm not the right person, then by all means, write it with someone else. 
So I'm going to keep all names out of this story. And the artist isn't even in our format. But there's an artist and he cut a song by one of my buddies. Mm-hmm. And he changed one word. And was like, I want to be a, uh, a co-writer because I'm changing one word. It seemed to me like the artist changed the word just to be a co-writer of the song. Mm-hmm. One word. If someone does or has done that, how do you react to that? Because he's, he, was, he was like, you know what? Okay. Yeah. It's a major artist. It's not in country. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you have to... Is that a douchebag move? I think it is. Yeah. But if... Since we're, since we're talking hypothetically, we'll use, we'll use artists that are outside of country. If Adele did that to me, I'd let her cut it. You know, and you know what? It was I'd somebody probably, so big yeah. that I think that had a factor yeah. in, into why. No, I'd probably lose a lot of respect. You know, I know, and I've always thought, man, she was brave. Is I've always heard that Elvis wanted to cut "I Will Always Love You," but he wanted to be he wanted to be listed either as a writer or he wanted Dolly's publishing. I don't remember what it was, but she wouldn't do it. And I've I've always thought, man, that was a brave, brave move. That's Elvis. Yeah, like how ballsy a doll, and that's yeah. why Dolly's a Dolly. Yeah. If you're that ballsy, you're either Dolly or you're just yeah. you end up not making it because it was the yeah. Damn, that's crazy. So has anyone done that to you? Where they're like, oh, "I'm gonna change a couple words, and we want some some of this this songwriting credit." No, I have really never. Oh. I've never experienced that. I do think in Nashville that songwriters get a lot more respect than in some other towns. It's weird too because songwriter friends of mine in, in California, mm-hmm. they split their percentages up way differently mm-hmm. than the Nashville split. Like, generally speaking, if you write a song with three people, it's 33%. Right. Everybody gets a third of the song. It's not like that with anyone that writes. I have friends who get 5% of a song. Well, and I was out, I went out before the Grammys and and I was in LA for a month and and had the opportunity to write with some people out there. And and one guy was explaining these song camps to me that they do where there might be 15 people and they might be just for, there might be three people in five different rooms. But everybody has everything of everything, not everything. But they split it up fifteen way. That's why they're. That's why on pop songs you see so, so many, many writers. writers. Is was he was? That's the way he was explaining it to me. Now I've never written for the pop market, and and that's just one one guy's version of it. But he's very successful, so I would guess that he knows what's going on. So I'm trying to picture this. There are fifteen people, and they're all in these different rooms writing all these different songs. So when they leave, everybody's attached to every song. Yes. That's the way he explained it to me. Like, he called it a song camp. Okay, so like a writer's retreat, let's say, mm-hmm. in, in our format. Yeah. Well, exactly. I can give you a fine example okay. of a time I wish that would have been the case. So when, when Casey Musgraves was making her first record, there were five of us that went on a retreat. It was myself, Shane, Josh Osborne, Luke Laird, and Casey. And we decided the way we would do it is two people would write with Casey and then the other two would write while while the three people were writing. So the first we drew we drew names in a hat. So the first the first trio was Josh and Shane and Casey and Luke and I were upstairs. So Luke and I write this fun song called I Drink to Get Drunk. We come downstairs and Shane and Casey and Josh have written Merry Go Round. <laughs> so I mean I would have loved to have had my name on that just for being up there messing around with Luke writing Drink to Get Drunk. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, it stinks, but it's awesome. It stinks in an awesome way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were blown away by what they had done. <laughs> Did you um, walk down and have, like, when you're at one of those retreats where it's off all you guys, you listen to all the songs, even the ones you didn't write? Not always. I mean, I think they were just really, they knew they had something really cool. And so, 
so they wanted to play it for us. That's we funny. didn't play our song for them. You didn't play Drink to Get Drunk no, for no. them? How about this? And I can remember, uh, I'll play, because you wrote this one. Follow Your Arrow. Yeah. My favorite song. I got in trouble because I played it every hour one day. Just you did? Nonstop. Because nobody would play it. Ready just wouldn't play it. So I was yeah. like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to play it every hour. That's so nice of you. It was in my, listen, I came in a little, a little too uh, rambunctious. Uh-huh. But I was just, I was playing it constantly. And I loved this song. And I hated that radio didn't embrace it. Uh-huh. And it made me so uh, upset that radio didn't embrace this song. And it wasn't like this monster hit. As a writer, did you, were you angry at the establishment in any way for not accepting something that really was a f- fantastic in every way. Well, you know, I try not to get too angry. I get, I can get angry over things. I, when I kind of when I when I got angry, not angry, but when it when I would just kind of throw my hands up is, I can play songs I've had that are hits. You played a couple of them a minute ago. When I play that, it's like I've written Bridge Over Troubled Water. You know, and so there was, I mean, thanks to people like you who played it every hour, somehow it got out there. And well, it's just a good song. I mean, yeah, thank you. And uh, so, I mean, I was very disappointed, yeah, that it, that it wasn't a hit, but, um, but it did still reach people. So that's a, that's a good thing. And it was CMA Song of the Year. I guess, I think it's the lowest charting song to ever be CMA <laughs> Song of the Year. I was shocked by that. You genuinely were shocked, shocked. to win shocked um had didn't expect it all you know usually you sit there when you're nominated for something and I, I never get nervous until they read the nominees and that's the one that's usually when I think oh wow we could win you know I didn't think that when do they you said remember you were up against I don't I do not remember um wow I can't remember when they say follow your arrow, though, are you like, you were just confused. Was, 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 it's just like, what? You know, I mean, jumped up and down and was excited. But, yeah, it didn't hit me. It's still sometimes, I forget, like, I'll be talking about, well, you know, they wrote C- they wrote CMA Song of the Year. And then I'll think, oh, well, I mean, so did I. Yeah. You know, because it just doesn't seem real. And it doesn't seem like a, to me, it doesn't seem like a Song of the Year type song. You know, like... Humble and kind was... Except, okay, let me uh, counterpoint that for a second. Mm-hmm. Why I think it does seem like a song of the year, because it has a message. You do, you're right, it does have that. So, maybe sonically to you? I, mm-hmm. I don't know why you would think it's not song of because, the year. Because, well, I mean... Or the look, charting position? No, you know what it was? is I always think of song of the years as like, humble and kind, that was just song of the year. I drive your truck. Girl crush. Yeah. it's They're usually ballads. Uh-huh. That's really what it is. And because that's ballads, of, a lot of times, the message is able to get out. Yeah. Because they're slower and you hear yeah. the words. Yeah. Look, I'm glad it was song of the year. You know? Okay. Well, yeah. 100%. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. I have a couple other Casey songs that, um, that you're... And I'm a, like... As far as current artists go, I think Casey's my favorite current artist. I love that. Like, period. Uh-huh. So... Just hold your own road. So you wrote this. And you wrote this with Her and Shane When you guys get together, it's like, okay, let's just put out let's make another hit. Here we go. You know, you know it's Rub a, lot palms of, together. a Here. lot of idea throwing out, you know? Uh, and that came from Follow Your Arrow. Came from something that was said while we were writing it. And then this one. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. Late to the party. Late to the party with you. 
such a good song. talk about some of your stuff now as an artist so how about i have so many songs here that i just love let's just go let's stay uh relatively current i forget how much i like late to the party late to the party oh it's such a i know it's such a great song it's dreamy and it's dreamy but it's like i get when you finally get it you get it Mm -hmm. if that makes like i think forever i just didn't understand because i never really had anybody that Mm -hmm. i was like but then once you finally find somebody that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That song makes more sense. Yeah, that's true. It does. Because you may not... Because I, I don't think the first... I think the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that, that's a cool song. It's a mm-hmm. nice love song. Then I met someone and I was like, I finally get it. Like, nothing else kind of matters. Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of the only thing that matters to us in this little circle right now. That's so... That's a great feeling. And so, yeah, there, there's something about... Like, all your music is so real. I just oh. wonder where it comes from. How, uh, love can go to hell. Love can go to hell. This, oh, my goodness. This is a good one, too. So angry. So, oh, it's like, and sad and, and frustrated and happy. And like, oh, I hear all this. Tell me about this song. You know, that's an interesting, I was talking about how an interesting point back to what we were talking about earlier with collaboration, how that was my idea. But I heard it like Love Can Go to Hell, like Hell in a Handbasket, like Fall Apart. And I said it to Scott Stepikoff, my co-writer and he loved it he goes yeah it's like love can go to hell like you're telling love off i was like man i didn't hear it like that and that's awesome like let's do both of those things and i think that's the beauty in it and then you know i have to i have to tip my hat to jay joyce on that who produced it he it was a straight up ballad and he he produced it in a way that made it move and and it made it more interesting and and made it sonically as as great as I think it is lyrically. Girl Next Door. This was the first song the new project came out. This is the first song I heard from the yeah. new project the last time. It was time. the first single. This one to me when it came, it sounded sonically different than other stuff that I'd yeah. heard you do before. Did you feel like it was... Well, see, it's funny and I did have a few people that were like, oh... Brandy's gone pop and oh, know. I never heard pop. Yeah, oh, yeah, I didn't. I mean, it doesn't sound pop to me either. But it had a few people, few fans who were mad, um, but they got they got over it. But uh, I, it didn't feel that different to me. But it's probably because I had lived with it for a long time, and I didn't think it was all that different from like Stripes off of my first record. But when I listened to it, it's like, oh yeah, it is. It is different, and but it was different when it was written. It wasn't like we went in and said, oh, let's make this. Let's make it this. Let's make it more aggressive for radio. It was. It that's also very close to the demo. Um, it it just is what the song was. Talk about stripes, because man, I love stripes. Too. If I squeeze that trigger tonight, I'll be wearing one or the other. There's no crime of fashion worth a crime of fashion. The only thing saving your life is that I don't look good in orange, and I hate stripes. I mean, song made you smile. Like it, I played it and you started smiling. Yeah, I, well, I love it because it's that it's tongue in cheek and and I always say like I think women there's there's a lot of talk about women not being represented enough on the radio and things like that. I feel like as women we're lucky because we can paint with a few more colors. Like a man could never even joke about that. I'm gonna shoot you. No, <laughs> you know, it just wouldn't even be funny. But 
I think it's just, I think about making the video, how fun that was, and it's still a fun song to play every night. People people love that song. So, you're out right now with Charlie Borsham. Mm-hmm. So, when you're playing, do you play any of the songs that you wrote and didn't record? I haven't been much on this tour, but I but I definitely do sometimes. And if somebody really, like, I played a show in... Um, in Annapolis and my guitar player was sick and so it was just me and so I came out and I played the first three songs and then I said okay I'm on my own tonight whatever y'all want to hear I'm going to play and the first thing somebody said was follow your arrow so I played it um if somebody if somebody really wants to hear something that I've written uh for someone else I'll do it but this tour has mostly been me playing the two records I have and then also I, I play a lot of songs that influenced me to write, we have a portion of the set. I'll, I always have Charlie come back out, and he and I go back and forth and play. We have a theme. Like the other night, and he'll call out the theme. Chest hair country was the theme, and so he played a Conway Twitty song, and then I played a Dolly song. I said, you know, she doesn't have she does have a chest. I don't think there's any hair on it, but you know. So we just start doing that kind of stuff. So it's a lot of that, and then our own stuff. How good is because we've had Shane's sat there before and Charlie sat there before uh-huh. so and I I know, I know both of them relatively well considering how I don't know really anybody but how good is Charlie like isn't he he's wonderful you know the other night he played uh, Sweet Music Man and it, it made me cry that's one of my, one of my favorite songs and I told him when he was done and I wasn't saying it for the audience's benefit it, I, I mean I got lost in it and I I said that's one of my favorite renditions of that I've ever heard. I mean, he's just he's such a not I mean, I, he's not a great guitar player. He's a tasteful master guitar player in my opinion. You know what he chooses to play, it's beyond great. That wouldn't be a a good uh adjective to describe his guitar playing. And then his singing is like John Randall, Vince Gill, like that high pure vocal sound that that not a lot of men have and it's just it's real special talk to me about because you asked me what day what time my day started like your life mm-hmm. let's say when you're in town well hopefully it starts out at the gym it doesn't always I'll admit that like today so your goal is morning gym morning gym today it didn't because I was I've been on the road so much and I haven't had a real day off in a long time but I don't have a lot of time here so when I'm here I like to write and so I went and wrote um, I usually start writing at like ten thirty, eleven. When do you wake up? Uh, usually eight. Oh, that would be a dream. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would be a dream. And I and honestly, I'd wake up earlier, but I have to stay in some sort of a road rhythm because a lot of times I go on at like nine thirty, and so you got your wind down after that. I'm sure you know about that. Your oh, it kills me. God, yeah. My schedule flip flops because I'll yeah. go oh. on at ten fifteen uh-huh. sometimes. And I'll do an hour and 15 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. By the time I'm in bed, it's 1 a.m. And I wake up at 3 a.m. So how do you do that? Uh, you do you don't. just start you, drinking coffee at 9? I don't drink any coffee. Oh. I, I, I just hurt. Oh. I'm in a perpetual sleepiness. It's a fog. And the only time it ever lifts during the entire year is on vacation. I literally hit a wall today because I've been going nonstop since January. What is today? May something? I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. And I just flew back from L.A. And so I, I hit a wall today for the first time where I was just like... Oh, because my schedule flips. Just like you're talking about, you have to yeah. get into your groove. So yeah. you try to time yourself to still wake up at around the right time. Yeah, like tomorrow, I, we're we're driving to Athens tonight. Bus calls at midnight, and tomorrow 
I'll tr- I'll get up at eight and I'll write, you know, because I try to write on the road. Sometimes I'll do Skype writing appointments how, with people. How do you feel about this, this Skype writes? Do you feel like you can get good stuff out of that? Yeah, have I you mean, written anything that that for you know for a short time? You know, it's it's not. I I've learned to treat it like, um, like okay, we've got an hour versus the way you sit down and write in Nashville where you have several hours and just get start sketching something out. But but I've also decided to take the road and force myself to write more by myself because I used to do that more. And even a lot of songs I've co-written, I started out by getting down a road a little ways by myself. And and so I've, I'm like, okay, you've got it. This road thing, you're you're in it now. And if you want to live in both worlds and... Because and, for me, artistically... There's nothing for me without songwriting. And so it's like I've got to... And I find myself I get a little depressed if I'm not writing. So, okay, you just got to make it work. If it's in the back of the bus, if it's in a dirty locker room, wherever it is, carve out the time and do that. And I, my headspace is better when Why I do Why do you it. feel that is? Why do you feel like you have to write? I just think I need it. Is I it think, like therapy? Because I spend a lot of time in therapy. Do you ever spend time in therapy? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's, do you feel like it's another form of that? I feel, you know what I feel like? I feel like it's that, but more than that, I feel like it's exercise. Because I believe that we're all given a certain number of really great ideas a year. And it's kind of like you got to go to practice to play in the game. And if you're not, if if your chops aren't great, you'll mess up that idea. You won't give it what it needs. So to me, it's, it's more like practice, like going to practice every day. And staying sharp. Because if I don't, I notice it. When I come back into town and I write, I notice that I'm not really on my game because I haven't been I haven't been doing it. But if I'm doing it every day, even if it's just for an hour, I notice a difference. When's the last time you walked into a write and you were like, Well, I'm kinda nervous to write with this person because I want to say something stupid? Oh man. Years. Because you know what? I quit I quit walking in like that. Because it's if if you can't say something stupid, you're not going to say something great. I mean, Bob DePiro. Have you had Bob DePiro on yet? Mm-hmm. Oh, you should get him. I mean, he'll have you in st- stitches, a. Eh? But he's just he's just a genius and a master craftsman. And he always says, really stupid and really great are about quarter of a million dollars apart. And that's true. You know, if you can't say, hey, this is stupid, but and not even have, if you need to get to a point where you don't even have to say this is stupid, but. You just say it, and then if you're in the right room, if you're in the room with the right person, they get it and they know how to turn it. And to me now, if I'm afraid to say something, I'm in the I shouldn't be in that room. What about people when they come in with you? Let's say the first time riding with you, and you can see that they're maybe a little intimidated. Mm-hmm. I always just say, you know, don't be afraid to say anything to me, and because if they're if they're nervous, then I get nervous. Like, oh, they expect me to be something that I'm not and and anybody like I'm talking about all these talented people like we were talking about Shane he is great but also he shows up I mean that's really what it is is people who show up again and again Harlan Howard who's to me one of the best songwriters of all time I saw an interview with him where he said I didn't write better songs I just wrote more of them and I think there is something to that even I mean I'm not real fast but just being in that that constant motion of output and input you got to input I mean you were sitting here talking about your book and I'm like I need to read his book because I get so many ideas from books 
I may, I constantly make myself read. And if I'm not, um, if I feel like I have nothing during that time that I would spend writing, I'll make myself read. So you'll draw a lot of inspiration because I felt you're driving to the bank. Like that's still mm-hmm. resonating with me. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, what song would she write? Mm-hmm. You do that with things you read and yeah. people and places and mm-hmm. you'll try to put yourself to where, what, where they're thinking their perspective. Yeah. And I think, I mean, my first publisher told me that, and at the time I didn't know how to take it, but it was such a compliment looking back, told me that, you know, m- most songwriters have either the gift of melody or the gift of lyric. And she said, your gift is empathy. She's like, you can empathize better than anyone I've ever known. Like you can, when you write something, it's like you've lived it. And at the time I thought, well, damn, you wish I wanted, you were to, be, I wanted <laughs> to be a great melody writer, you know, or a great lyric writer. And, and she was right. And I think when I embraced that, the other things fell into place. Were you a good student? I, I, yeah. I wasn't like a genius, but yeah, I was a good student. Were you a hardworking student? Mm, I wish I would have worked harder. So you're pretty smart and pretty hardworking. Really hardworking, but I didn't. I didn't apply myself in. I was an athlete in high school, and I. I don't know anybody worked harder than me in that way. And and I worked. I think um, academics came easier, so I didn't work as hard as that. At that, but um, I've worked every bit as hard and harder at music than than I worked at either of those things. I mean, you're good at a lot of things. You you went on a basketball scholarship. Like mm-hmm. you, you, they paid for you to go to school to play ball. They did, yeah. Like you were that good. Yeah, but you know, I'll tell you what, that was a situation where where the hard work ran out because I had always been great in high school because I worked hard, and so I could be better than some people who were more talented than me. I get into college, and not only do all the other girls work as hard as me, but they're all taller and quicker than me. So the hard work eventually in that way wore out. Now, had my passion stayed there, I probably would have gone on to be a coach or something, um, but my, I was, by the time I got to college, the music bug had bit me hard and literally this is, this is not, this is not an exaggeration. The day I, I quit playing basketball where I had a scholarship and I moved home and started going to a community college. How, what year of college were you when you did that? Freshman year. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't play long. Um, and I really, when I look back at why I quit, I was very homesick. You know, like I said, my parents never missed a game. So looking up in the stands and them not being there was really hard for me. And, and I wasn't ready to, to leave the nest. You know, it, it, I was such a mama and daddy's girl. I just didn't know. I didn't even understand what it meant to leave. So I move home and I, I start going to community college and it's like a 35 mile drive every day and living at home and working and the coach at that at that school wanted me to play there. And so I started going to open gyms. It was in the off season. And I realized like, you know, I was just wanting to go home and my mom played music and my mom and I just sit there and play music. And so I remember going in and telling him I wasn't going to play and that, you know, I just, my heart wasn't in it. And he said, are you sure? And I said, oh yeah, I know I'm sure. And, you know, I, I don't want to take a spot from someone who does want it. And I left and I went and bought a guitar literally on the way home. And just never looked back. I just transferred all that passion I used to have for that into music. You just, did you just quit thinking about basketball every minute yeah. when you made that decision? You know, and I had honestly quit thinking about it before then. I, when I really look back on it, I guess, you know, at that time, I think they had the WNBA, which I would have never been good enough for it. But there wasn't anything really for, for women's basketball beyond college. 
And my goal, I also learned a a real good lesson about goal setting. My goal had always just been to get a college scholarship. So once I got that, it was like, okay, goal achieved. I didn't have goals. I didn't have aspirations beyond that. And so when I got into it and was homesick and, you know, all those things, I just didn't want it anymore. And, and, and I, and I was playing a lot of music at that point and, so by the time I gave it up, I wasn't thinking about it much at all. Before I ask you about your move to Nashville, I want to know how good a high school player you were to get a scholar. You got to be really good. So what, what were you averaging a game? I don't, you know, I, I think I averaged about 15 points a game. Were you a guard? I was. I was a shooting guard, and I was a really good three-point shooter before a lot of girls were. I graduated high school in 94, so it was before a lot of girls were really good three-point shooters because it was kind of, it wasn't like super new, but... It just wasn't something that was focused on. And my senior year, I uh, I set, I remember I set a state record. I had 10 three-pointers in a game one time. And then in, at the... St- do you remember that game? I do. Like, did you, do you remember feeling in the zone? Like, yeah, oh, the, yeah. The, it, it was as yeah. round as a closed yeah. basket. Couldn't miss, you know? And then um, in the state tournament, I set a couple of, of state tournament records for, like, three-pointers in a game and in a in a tournament, in a career. And so that got me a lot of attention because like I said, at that point, that was, there weren't a lot of girls that were really, that wasn't the, the, now it's like girls shoot three pointers like guys did. But then, I mean, I'm making it sound like it was in the dark ages, but it, it just wasn't as, as common. Any of your records still hold? You know, I think my, I think my mom told me that like the last one got broken like last year <laughs> or something, you know? That's so funny to think about. Like, you are an all-star basketball player. Do you still ever grab basketball and it just kind of feels good? It just feels like, man. It You know, it does feel good. And I don't do it enough and I should. But whenever I like, like if I'm at the Y or something and, and there's just balls out. some every It's been a couple of years since I've done this, but I'll just start shooting. And it comes back to you real quick. Man, you can hustle people quick around here. Yeah, I use, I remember my mom used to say to me, you need to get in that Ben Scale basketball game. That would be, that's your way into the music business. She would always tell me that. and Because uh, you'd be a ringer. Like you'd be a ringer basketball player. And well, you're legit. You're legit music. I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, man. I got to remember this, dude. Next time we do something, I'll be, yeah, I'll bring Brandy. You know, you, don't, you know Brandy. Don't worry about her. <laughs> like Brandy set up on the, from the elbow. Boom, boom, boom. That's crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. And I get, you know, I don't, and I'm not so, I'm not so into the sport anymore, but like March Madness, I don't miss it. Do you have a team? Well, UT, of course. And then whatever, like this year it was Gonzaga because they're from Washington State. And uh, so I always root for UT, you know, football, basketball, whatever. I just, when I moved here, I remember my dad telling me that football was like a religion in the South. And, uh, and I had, we'd always watched football and loved football. I didn't think, how could it be anymore? And then I get back here and I had some really good friends. Um, They're still there, but they lived in North Carolina and I didn't know anybody. So I'd drive over and see them a lot of weekends and I'd always see the the white and orange pom-poms hanging out of car windows and I thought I think I want to be a part of that I had decided I was gonna be Vandy or UT and so I chose UT and and I'm I'm real big about like not being a fickle fan to me that's a that's a character flaw like you get a team and you stick with them and so I have stuck with UT through the thick and the thin and a lot of thin lately yeah, a lot of family. I mean, there was some real thick, because I'm a huge Arkansas fan, diehard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we win one game, we win nine or ten. Yeah. But Tennessee was really good. 
mm-hmm. in like 98, 99. Mm-hmm. I mean, they won a national championship after Peyton Manning left. Like, I'm a sports nerd, by the way. I did a national sports show forever. So uh-huh. when, I knew, when I knew you played ball in high school and then, then in college, I was like, holy cow, what can she not do? It's so irritating for us that like struggled everything. And here you are just dominating <laughs> oh, that's, well, sports and music. You know what I have? My talent, you know, I said Shane's talent is bringing out the best in others. My talent is I just won't give up. You know, I just, nobody will ever outwork me at anything. Um, I just, because I wasn't a great athlete. And, but I just made my, I put, I got myself into better shape than anybody. Because I just was not quick. I think you're either quick or you're not. And I wasn't quick. And so I just was in such good shape that I could wear people down. Yeah, quickness is like height. You either are or you aren't. There are other things you can do. And you know, I'd take quickness over height. I really would. That's a tough one. But I love, you know, I do, I love college football. I follow that more than basketball. And um, it's, I mean, this is such a great part of the country to live in for it. You buy a guitar on the way home. You mm-hmm. say, I'm done with basketball. You buy a guitar from a pawn shop. That's where I no. bought my first ever one. Where'd you buy a guitar from? Uh, I bought it from a music store. So you stopped and bought a real guitar? Yeah. And and I had guitars, but it was the first electric guitar I had. And I'm not some kind of a shredder sort of player, but I was real interested in that at the time. So I bought the guitar and the amp. I remember it was a PV and, um, and just started playing. And, and then I, I formed a band with my mom and one of my best longest friends. And we started entering, um, like talent competitions. We had really great three part harmony and got a band and played a lot of fairs and festivals. And, you know, like everything, I couldn't get in it just a little bit, you know, I had to get in it a lot and, and it wasn't long before I moved to Nashville after that okay well I, I was going to ask about that but for me I'm an all or nothing person which is why I don't drink because I know what I would do I would everything I do consumes me mm-hmm. are you OCD kind of yeah I mean I, I it's it's hard for me to do anything a little bit and I've never had any addiction problems I'm real lucky that way um and you know I, I my dad was that way too you know my um, I remember my grandma used to say, it's a good thing your dad's not into drugs or alcohol because as much as he, he gets into everything else, he was like a fitness fanatic. And um, just anything he did, it was like all the way. And I, I definitely got that from him. It, was, it, would have, it would have never been good enough for me internally to, be, to stay where I was and work a job I didn't like and be in a band on the weekends. I, I had to chase it. And no other parts of your life, like, again, for me, I know if I drank, I've never had a drink, because I, I just know, I saw my mm-hmm. mom do it, too, mm-hmm. but but I, I would love to drink, it looks so fun, I would love to smoke weed, it looks uh-huh. so fun, but I just know, I, it's all I would do, that's it, because all I do now is work, and it's all I want to do, mm-hmm. my mind's focused, I'm writing this, I'm writing this, yeah. I'm doing the show, I'm doing the same, I'm on the road, but... You're, you can you can drink a little bit and be okay. I'll tell you what I can't do. I mean, I yeah, and I'm a workaholic. I can get in trouble with gambling. I had to stop. I had, I had a gambling problem. Yeah. I stopped playing poker. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I mean, I'm I. You know what I? What do? kind of trouble gambling? Well, I mean, like, well, I could just, let me know more yeah, about this. I could just. Cause you said tunica. That's like redneck Vegas. Oh yeah, redneck. Vegas. I've been to tunica many times. The problem with me with gambling, I realized, is to me. The only thing slightly less fun than winning is losing. It's the thrill yeah. of not losing more than winning. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That you, that's exactly an, an addict's yeah. feeling. It's, and for me, I can't really win enough to excite me, but I can lose enough to hurt me. Man, that is very that you just hit the nail on the head. And that's why I stopped <laughs> because there was no happiness. There was only avoiding sadness and getting sad. 
<laughs> that was it. And once I hit that point, because, Brandy, I would go and I would play these tournaments. I would fly to Vegas just to play poker. And I won uh-huh. a tournament for like, you know, $1,000 one time. Uh-huh. Like, I won the whole thing. It was like a 13-hour tournament. How many people were in it? About? 130 or so. Wow. So you were a good poker player. Anybody good that says for me to a, know. Anybody that says they're a good poker player is not. It's like a good golfer. Yeah. I played a lot. Uh-huh. And I had all, every book on my shelf was a book about Doyle Brunson or a book about, and I was good at math and odds. Uh-huh. And so I just studied the game all the time, right? That's yeah. all I did. I would go to work and I would just study and read and learn. And, and then I realized I want all this money and I come mm-hmm. from nothing and the money did not excite me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have a problem. Yeah. It's not about the money. I mean, I, but speaking of that and like have, and being a little OCD, like I've never had a credit card. Because wow, yeah, because I know I would get in trouble. You've never had never. a credit card. People are always shocked about that. I've never had a credit card. Um, now there are business credit cards, like for my touring and stuff, but I don't have them. Because, That's crazy. Yeah, because Brandy. I know I would get in trouble with a credit card. I've always known it. And have it, you ever used a credit card ever in one time? Nope. That's amazing. I yeah. love it. Yep. Never used it. You're, you're nuts like me. Yeah. I, I can just, you know how you meet somebody, you, need, you, know, you know they're a little nuts. I can feel it. Yeah. I've never had a credit card. Wow. Um, and I get obsessed with things. Like you said, like you, you would go home and read the poker books. I, I was watching that TV show. This is what I do. And it's just, I'm like, how sick am I? So I was watching that TV show Feud on FX about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. I would stay up all night finding out anything I could about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Like, I just would go down these rabbit holes. Oh, Betty Davis smoked five packs of cigarettes a day up until she died at 87. Like, just all these random facts. And I just, I get obsessed with things like that. I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. I will watch a sitcom and I will Wikipedia or Google every character in the sitcom. Even the people that are like the B characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to know where Jeffrey the butler from Fresh Prince has been since, like, every, I must know. Yeah. Did you ever watch Breaking Bad? I did, yeah. Okay. Well, this is how sick I am. I found out that there was a color chart for every character. And if you go back and watch it, you can see, and they picked colors that the people were going to wear, and they would change the colors as they as they dove into darkness. Like, Skylar always wore blue until she got into Walt's world, and then the blue got darker until she started wearing black. The only character whose color never changed was Hank's wife. She was the one consistent. They always kept her in purple. Wait, how did you how did you know or realize this? I I was just like going down the rabbit hole of Breaking Bad and trying to find out facts about it, and I stumbled upon it. and And it was something they decided when I think it's Vince Gilligan mm-hmm. did, created yeah created that show. He decided that, and and I it just blew my mind. And I'll just go down. I, I could tell you almost everything about Jaws. Um, <laughs> you know, like do you ever get on Reddit? No. Oh, it's a, it's any it's the it's like podcasts but for internet geeks. Whatever you want to know, there's a there's a thread, there's a message board, there's a group for it. It doesn't matter what the topic is. You can go and nerd out on whatever it is that you want. Like I'll go and watch like a show on Netflix. Like whenever uh, Stephen Avery, did you ever watch that the, a couple years ago? Okay, making a murder. Making a murder. When that came out, I was on Reddit every day reading theories. People were like going through all the case files. Because the Freedom of Information Act, they were going to request it, and they were doing full reports themselves. Mm-hmm. And so Reddit, don't even look at it because you'll never get off of it. It'll uh, be a terrible place for you to go. I do. I was. This is real sick. But I, I was on a jury several years ago, and the the person that was on trial was convicted of the crime, and 
isn't up for parole till 2021. And I'll go, I'll go find the number, the, the prisoner number and check up on her every once in a while. Like, I wonder if she's, I wonder if she's getting out on good behavior, you know, those kinds of things. Where's she at? Were you like a trivia nerd? No, I really wasn't. But anything I've ever been really interested in, I just, I, country music was that way for me, you know, when I, I mean, I grew up, that was what we listened to, but when I started to really pay attention to who wrote songs and who produced them, and I would just find out everything I could. When you decided to move to Nashville from Washington, was it to be a songwriter? Was it to be an artist? Like what in your mind was going to happen in your life? Um, it was to be both, you know, but I definitely at that point was more, I mean, I would say I was 70% artist, 30% songwriter in my mind. And then I moved here and, but I think I was always more songwriter than I realized, you know, I was really driven by that. And, and I moved here and I started to make friends and do open mic nights and that. And, and the friends I had that were getting record deals or getting at the time, like artist development deals, they were really, really into the things that were tough for me. Like we were talking about hair and makeup earlier. Like they would, instead of going to a writing appointment, they'd go tan. And I just started to see as the time went on, well, that's just not me. I don't, I, and, and about the time that I had completely given up on it, I had the opportunity to make my first record 12 stories. And I just was always driven to, the thing that always has driven me was to get better as a songwriter. That that was, and I think part of it was because it felt like it was something I could control. Like I can go in every day and and try to get it to be a better craftsman. I love Twelve Stories. I love both the records. And I think you're nominated for two Grammys this past mm-hmm. year. And so album of the year. Yes. And uh, female performance. I'm vocal th- performance. Vocal performance. Because yeah. they put them, well, here. they put them all together at the Grammys. So, is it frustrating to you to be up for, like, a, the, you guys not bigger than the Grammys, uh-huh. but to not yet achieve the commercial success? Oh, yeah. I would be lying if I said that I wasn't. And I think anyone who says differently is lying to someone, probably mostly themselves. I mean, we all want to be super successful. As, I mean, now, I, I don't want to compromise my art for it. I, I always want to make make music that I feel proud of and that that I'm going to want to and I don't know how you really know this but that I'm going to want to still perform in 10 years you know um and so I've never compromised in that way and I've never been asked to compromise in that way either I must say and so yeah it 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 it, it's disappointing and and sometimes you know if I'm just speaking just real honest terms it's it hurts my feelings you know because you you want to be loved and you want to feel like oh man radio radio feels like I'm worth spending their their real estate on and but you know but also things like being Grammy nominated they make you feel like okay I'm doing something right here how do I just get a few how do I get more ears on this that's always my um my motivation and and I think too for me like with the radio every artist that I loved and wanted to be like as a kid was on the radio so to me that was the pinnacle and, um, but people get their music all different ways now, you know, that's something that I've learned. And, and an artist like myself, when I first came to town, the way that my record broke my first record, it was on a small independent label. It was all publicity buzz and social media that would have never happened when I first moved here. It changes 
so fast. You know better than me. I mean, you're you're in the middle of it more than I am. But but just the way that people get music changes. Yeah, it it changed so much that it's almost distracting, and it's almost to where you even records. And my thing is, I don't think you'll have full records in the next three to five years. Everybody keeps saying that because we're in such an ADD society of. What you got next? What you got next? Mm-hmm. There's a new record, new new song, new record, new song, new new song. Mm-hmm. That if you're not pu- even songs are getting shorter mm-hmm. because data shows that people are going to punch out faster. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to put a five and a half minute song out, people just aren't going to sit through it anymore. Mm-hmm. Our brains now are in this. Let me check my phone. Let me check my computer. Let me yeah. check. Let me check. Let me check. Let me check. And it's not right or wrong. It's just how we funk. I'm checking my Facebook. I'm checking my Twitter. Songs are going. What else is out there? Oh, new mm-hmm. music just popped up over here on I mean, new music just popped up. You know, so. We have to always adjust. Everyone's always had to adjust. Yep. Forever in the history, be mm-hmm. it format, be it technology, everyone's always had to adjust. And that's what I'm finding now is that even me, and I've referenced this a few times, John Mayer put out a record, but he put it out in three chunks. I love that. And he put it, and, and what I liked about it, what I really loved about it, because I'm a massive John Mayer fan, mm-hmm. is that I was able to take four songs at a time and spend a month with these four songs and really appreciate them Rather than get 12 or 13 and go, here it is, mm-hmm. you can't really take your time with 12 or 13 because before you know it, the next week there's something else out. Right. There's something else. With four songs, I got to love them. I got to hear other things too. Come back to the four songs. And by the time it was over, it was like, I, I, I know every song on the entire record now because of how it was put out. But then again, mm-hmm. the hard copy didn't matter as much. In our format, it's still 60% hard copy. You know, people are still yeah. buying CDs a lot. I always, I had this idea for my first record. I loved the uh, way that Stephen King put out The Green Mile. He put it out three chapters at a time. And I remember how excited I was to, to go to a bookstore and get that. It, I think it was a month. And I remember when I did my first record, I, I was talking to my manager at the time. What if we put out a song? What if we put it out like the Green Mile, like in chapters, since it's called Twelve Stories? Well, nobody knew me, so it wasn't a, a great plan. But somebody like John Mayer can do that. When he did that, it made me think of that. Like, oh, it's like the Green Mile. Yeah, it was like Wave One, yeah. Wave Two, uh huh, Wave Three, yeah. There's and you know, our, a presale is a little bit like that, where you get a few songs. My but, problem with the presale. Are you gonna get me started too? Because okay. I think radio. I think. I think I can just fix all the radio and all record. Just, just give it to me, and I'll fix it all. Oh, we, we all have just, all the yes, answers. Yes, yes, yes. I have every answer. We can't Let me know. fix our own lives, yes. but we can fix that. I am a disaster as a human, <laughs> and sometimes professionally, but I can fix everything else. So, I don't even know where I was going with that. What, was, what were we just talking pre-sale. about? Pre-sale. Pre-sale. Thank you. Here's the problem with the pre-sale. You, not you, but people, you need to make the pre-sale where you can't get the three songs unless you buy the whole record as a pre-sale. Otherwise, I'm just going to buy one. Two oh. of the singles, three of the singles. See, this is how how uh, how dense I am. I didn't think you could. I oh thought, yeah. Oh, I thought you had to. Mm-mm. You can go buy the three singles separately. You can buy oh. two of the three. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So yeah. when the pre-sale goes up, it's the same thing. Just putting three songs up and going. Do I want to buy the rest of the record later? So pre-sale. Okay, you can buy these three. You can buy the whole record and you get all three of these songs, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's how to do it. But everybody's short terming it. Everybody's short. We're looking at the, to get this one or two songs sold. Like if people mm-hmm. were really investing in the album, mm-hmm. which we're not going to anymore, that's going to die. Except for the real people that want an album to represent a piece yeah. of art, you're always going to have that kind of artist. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see far less of them now, just because of the money involved in, in making music. But let's say you put out three songs and mm-hmm. it's the pre-sale. I could buy two of them. 
and never touch the record. Yeah, I did. Or I could just buy, just pre-sell and buy the whole record and have all three of them, but I could have bought them separately anyway. It's a it's a weird system. It's it doesn't it's not correct. I should fix it. Yeah, I didn't know that. See, I, I I had no idea. I thought they had to buy all of it to get it. And then streaming's a whole the wild west still. Yeah, and that's trying to figure that out. And I think about you know as a songwriter, I was so against streaming because you know we just don't get paid. And when I was out on a radio tour, um, we were coming home late one night. I'd never even looked at Spotify at this point. Um, and the radio rep, he's trying to stay awake, and he's like, hey, would you play DJ? I said, okay. He hands me his phone, and it's Spotify. And for some, and I thought, oh, my God, this is like a candy store. You know, like. For the consumer. Yeah, you can just, you can mm-hmm. get anything. If And I thought if I didn't know what I know about how songwriters are and aren't being paid on it, this would be the way I would get my music. It's the new Napster, and that's what we're dealing with now. Because back when we were younger, Napster existed, and we got whatever we wanted oh, yeah. free. Yeah, You just picked a letter and downloaded every song that started with L and woke up with a thousand new songs and didn't pay anything for it. And we thought oh. that it was just cool, and we were mad at Metallica for fighting it. Well, you know, I remember Jesse Jo Dillon, who's a, who's a, a great friend and great collaborator of mine, her dad, Dean Dillon, legendary songwriter, she said when she was in junior middle school... She found Napster, was all excited, and said, Dad, look at I've got all these songs of yours. She said he just lost his mind. Like, and it makes sense now, but us, yeah. we were just like... Oh, I remember it was such I, a cool thing. And I was so upset. I was like, these artists want to take away our rightful free music, not knowing what we know now. Now, fast forward now, and you have the streaming services, and there aren't laws yet, just like there weren't for Napster then. That was legal until it mm-hmm. wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then once it became illegal on LimeWire, and there were all these... And that slowly went away because it was illegal. Now you're having streaming, and they're trying to figure out the Wild West. And, you know, I have a friend um, that goes and testifies and is, you know, very much for – he's a songwriter in town, uh, Lee Thomas Miller. Oh, I love him. So he's one of my closest friends. And yeah. so he goes and he it goes and testifies in front of the Congress, and it's mm-hmm. like – the and, but it's going to take another couple years of the Wild West being figured out. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to get figured out and then something else is going to, then it's going to all of a sudden be Globotron, thin air, you snap us. You know, it'll be something else. The, the, it's never going to end. The cycle's never going to end of yeah. figuring out what's new. Yeah. But the money will come in streaming just like Napster stopped and something new will then pop up yeah. and we'll be getting, we'll. I think the thing that always will be around no matter what is the live performance because there's something about that that people are willing to pay money for. And I think about in, you know, there were court gestures. Like, there, people like to be entertained in a live way. That's the one thing through all of it that I think will remain constant. But I could be wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. It's it, almost to me, it's like sports on television. Like, you can put Netflix out there, you can put Hulu, you can go mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. But if you want to watch sports, it, it needs to be live. Mm-hmm. And it's the only thing, and it's the reason television really is the cable is able to maintain. Is sports is live events, and a lot of that sports. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll just DVR or it's put everything funny on demand. That you would say that because I won't watch a recorded game. I, mean, I won't either. Yeah, I won't either. Even I'm a diehard Razorback fan. I cannot mm-hmm. watch a recorded game. Mm-mm. I'll just look at the score if I if I yeah. and I don't miss a game. Mm-hmm. At least watching it, and if I do, boy, it stinks. If I do, if my band's playing, I'll have a monitor or TV with a screen mm-hmm. on and there have been times where Arkansas is playing football and, and it, the game should be over and it's an over it's an overtime whatever and I'll have whoever's opening if I'm going to stand up I'll have, I'll have my stage manager 
or my tour manager go out and say, hey, Bobby needs you to play an extra 15 minutes. <laughs> like the Arkansas-Tennessee game, oh, they're like, Bobby needs you to play an extra. We were in St. Louis, and her name's Nikita Carmen, and she was like, okay. So she just played 15 minutes, and I watched the end of the game. But I, live television is what you're it, – it, that's how sports mm-hmm. is going to keep live television mm-hmm. a thing, just like the live performance is going yeah. to be the one stable thing in music. Mm-hmm. But it's never stayed. It's never been stable except for the live performance. Yeah, that is it. And I, and it's you know it's just been real. I mean, I feel like things have changed so much in the last couple years with the streaming, and it's always something we don't take serious. That and that's why it grows because we don't take it serious. Yeah. yeah. If we took it serious, it wouldn't be out of control. We'd have <laughs> hammered it down from the very yeah. beginning and yeah. know and knew what we were getting into. Um, man, before you know it, you're an hour and fifteen minutes into to, oh, wow. to a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Brandy is out right now with Charlie Warsham. How long are you guys out until, do you know? Mid-June, I think, or maybe late June. And, and we're playing a lot. We're, we're, uh, in the Southeast this weekend. I don't know when this airs, but we're playing in, uh, Athens, Georgia tomorrow and, um, Greensboro, North Carolina, somewhere in Virginia. Can't remember. But then, uh, then we're here in Nashville. You guys should come to the show. We're playing the winery, the winery. Is it a weeknight? It is. <laughs> well, no, you know what? Um, it's, or or uh, I'm on the road. It's a Friday night and a Sunday night because the first show sold out, so they added a Sunday night. Um, That's fun. Yeah. So you know, but I know what it's like too, to to get out. But anyways, the offers there, um, and uh, and then we go out to the the West Coast for a couple weeks. I hope everybody downloads, or maybe even streams. Big day in a small town. <laughs> Depending on when you hear this, you know, podcast live forever. And I really. First of all, I'm a fan of your music before I ever met you. I, it was a year and a half before I ever met you from when I was just like, man, Brandy's awesome. I really enjoy being around you. And it's such a different experience than listening to music. I just thought you would come in and be – it would be like the Grim Reaper. Like Brandy was like, dun, 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 dun. I am here to make you sad. <laughs> I know we started out real low. Um, but I enjoy being around you as well. What? You know, you're a good you're a good energy. Well, thank you. And I thought – Another thing is my girlfriend, Lindsay L., was on tour I love Lindsay. with you and Jennifer Nettles mm-hmm. and just would say the greatest thing. She would say, Brandy's like the greatest human ever. Oh, that's nice. I mean, she's she's just wonderful. She has a new single coming out, I yeah. saw, which is, yeah, and like, which is amazing. A couple of weeks or three weeks or so. You know, and I said that, that nobody will outwork me, but Lindsay, would, would, Lindsay works as hard as me. She works hard. She's a hard worker. Yeah. She hard gr- worker. She's a grinder. Yeah. She deserves everything she gets in a good way, including you. I can tell you're a good dude. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, Brandy Clark, thank you for coming by the house. I really appreciate it. Oh, I always you. know it's got to be weird because I, I like doing the show from my house because once people get in, it feels more like mm-hmm. we're just hanging out, right? Yeah. But I know it's weird to knock on the front door of somebody's house and be like, I'm here for a thing. <laughs> like, I know that's got to be is, Was it weird driving up? No, but because... I've done these kinds of things before. Yeah. I mean, you know, I did, uh, there, Melissa Etheridge has a show on XM called Melissa's basement. That was a little weird, you know, cause I, I remember I flew in and, and it was in LA and, and drove to her house and, you know, I'd never met Melissa Etheridge and she was, she, her first, the first record she had that really was huge. I remember my best friend in high school loved it. And, and so I was thinking about all that going there like, Oh my God, like, going to Melissa Etheridge's house so that was kind of weird and there there was security and stuff there was no security involved in your house so and and I'd met you before so it wasn't as weird I think the house feels good it's way cooler than in a studio 
Yeah, it feels like a, uh, eventually you settle in. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize you've been doing this for an hour and yeah. whatever minutes. I met Melissa Etheridge about a month ago for the first time. And I wanted to take a picture with her and I couldn't get to, and I didn't have the nerve to do it. I could, I was. She probably would have loved that. I just didn't want to. And the reason was Lindsay was playing a show with her. Uh-huh. And I didn't want to be, I didn't, one, I didn't want to embarrass Lindsay. And yeah. two, I didn't want to be that guy. But I'm such a fan still mm-hmm. of music and of her and of a couple of our records, you know. And I used to play her on the radio. Yeah. You know, come to my window. Like, uh-huh. I played that 10,000 times or I'm the only one. Oh, great song. You know what's crazy about you saying you didn't want to ask somebody for a picture? I'm real weird about that. Like, I never want to ask anybody for a picture. But I was um, playing the Bentonville, Arkansas Film Festival. And Gina Davis is one of the the founders of that, which Bentonville is such a great little town. I know it well. And uh, I said to my tour manager, and he, you know, there's a lot of times where I'll be out with somebody and they'll say, does Brandy want a picture with, like, Dwight Yoakam? Does Brandy want a picture with Dwight? No, it's it's fine. Um, and, uh, in fact, this weekend I was out with Winona. I digress, and I wanted to see her puppy. I heard she had this puppy, and... And uh, I walked over to her and I was like, hey, I'm Brandy. I played earlier and I was in pajamas at this point. She's like, you want a picture or something? And I said, no, actually, I want to meet your dog. (laughs) And she's like, wow, what a concept that you just want to hang out and not get a picture. So I kind of pride myself and never bother anybody for a picture. But when we were at the Bentonville Film Festival, I said to my tour manager, I said, Bart, if there's an opportunity for me to get a picture with Gina Davis, take it. And did you get one? There wasn't. No. (laughs) You know what? This weekend, our iHeart Country Festival happened, and I was hosting it. And Scott Foley, who's in in Scandal, I don't know if you watch Scandal at all, but he plays one of the main characters. Oh, yeah. I know who that is. Okay. So he's like Jake in Scandal. Mm -hmm. And he was standing there. And it was me, Little Big Town, and him. But he was in the middle of like Jimmy and Karen. And everybody's just talking. And I'm like, and I know all the Little Big Town people well. I know Uh all of them. But I was like, I just wish I would leave so I get a picture with Scott Foley. And I was too embarrassed to hop in. And get, and so right as I was about to just take the nerve and be like, hey, Scott. He was like, all right. It was just super kind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see you guys later. And he walked away. And I was like, oh, I just didn't have the courage to do it. I felt so stupid. There are those people. I, I'll tell you, when I was out with Jennifer Nettles, one of Jennifer's biggest fans is Connie Chung. Really? Yes. And we were playing somewhere on the East Coast, and Connie Chung was at the show. And I remember hearing that like earlier in the day, like, oh, Connie Chung is here. And I'm back in my bunk, and somebody's like, hey, Connie Chung's on the bus, and she wants to meet you. And I was like, no, you know, that's not true. It's true. I walked out of there, she had a Brandy Clark t-shirt on. And and she had a few cocktails, you know. It was kind of funny to see this, this like, anchor woman who's you know broken all the big stories in my life kind of tipsy with a with a brandy clark t-shirt on that's funny we got a picture that night that was crazy it's, i don't know if you know this wasn't she ready to like mari povich or? yep she still is and he was not there because he was golfing i remember that they're still together huh yeah that's crazy man we're going again we're going on those rabbit holes that you're talking <laughs> about we can, we're rabbit holing it um Brandy, thank you for coming by. Oh, thank you, Bobby. Really appreciate it. Mike, what episode is this? 58. All right, episode 58 of the Bobbycast. Thank you very much. Please, if uh, Brandy's coming by, wherever, if it's this tour with Charlie or if you're hearing this six months from now and she's coming by, uh, go see her. She really is fantastic live. And she's fun to be around, and she loves taking pictures. <laughs> she loves pictures all the time. Can't get enough pictures. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, and thanks to 100 Flowers. All right, goodbye.